Welcome to the Earth Keepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. In this episode, we'll be talking with Reverend Ray Simpson about his latest book called Celtic Christianity in Climate Crisis, 12 Keys for the Future of the Church. Ray is also a founder of a new monastic order called the Community of Aden and Hilda. Though Ray helped to start this community in the United Kingdom, it now includes people from all over the world, people who believe that values and practices of the ancient Celtic Church have particular relevance for contemporary Christ followers. The community draws on these ancient ways to create an order of life, or waymarks as they are called. Among other things, this way of life recommends learning how to truly listen. I think to begin to listen, we have to learn to be still and to have a respect for that which is of God in the person in front of us this very minute. I think we have to listen to the rhythms of our own body and soul. I think we have to listen to the rhythms of the land and the community among which we're set. And I think on a wider level, we have to listen to what a sick world rushing headlong into possible oblivion is saying to us. And the still small voice behind this fatalistic Gadarene rush. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Ray, I'd like to start with one of the many roles that you play and ask you to talk about your role as the founding guardian of the community of Aden and Hilda. What is the international community of Aden and Hilda and how did that come into being? Well, it's great to be with you all. The community of Aden and Hilda is a worldwide pilgrim network of people who reconnect with the spirit and the scriptures, the seasons and the soil, the soul friends and the saints. And we do this by committing to a way of life, but the values of the Beatitudes and 10 Waymarks. I, as founding guardian, I help to forge the way of life, which has 10 key components, and to work through with a council, categories of people who are explorers, or voyagers who are in first vows. So it's a new monastic movement, and we resource people and churches and networks through retreats, through writings, through the internet, and through personal soul friend and mentoring. And so why Aidan and Hilda? Who are those people in history? Well, when the World Wide Web was launched, 90% of it was in the English language. And Aidan is known as the apostle to English speakers. And the interesting thing is that he was an indigenous, he was Irish, who came to the horrible Anglo-Saxons. I say to Americans, the original wasps were converted at Lindisfarne, where I've lived for 20 years, white Anglo-Saxon pagans. And he converted them 
to a, a form of following Jesus was not colonial, but was indigenous. And he was gentle and he loved the poor. He walked everywhere. He wouldn't ride a horse, which would put him above the ordinary people. And he modeled the kingdom of God by forming communities of class-lift communities, villages of God, the first schools amongst the Anglo-Saxons he established. And Hilda was an Ang was not Irish, she was Anglo-Saxon, so they were different languages, different races. And she was even a princess, but she was wowed by Aden's spirituality. And she became a known as a merciful mother to people on opposing sides, the Roman and the Irish traditions, all knew her as a merciful mother. And she was the first woman to be in charge of a double monastery for men and women. And after her demise and those of similar monasteries in Francia and Germany, it was a thousand years before another woman led women and men in large communities. So I wonder, what is it that draws people to the community of Aden and Hildzo? What, what are contemporary people looking for when they come to you? Well, I think a lot of people have written off Christianity or people within Christianity are becoming ambivalent because it has been so closely tied since the third and fourth century with imperialism and colonialism. Now, with the, the climate crisis, this is absolutely urgent that we we draw on strands of the way of Jesus which started as grassroots among the poor, among slaves who worked with their hands. But when it spread to this Celtic-speaking lands, it did not become, for a hundred or two years, colonialized because it spread into indigenous ways. People farmed the land, prayed as Muslims do in the rhythms of the sun each day of the week. So it kept that communion with God in the whole of creation. Obviously, this podcast is concerned primarily with issues of creation care. So I'm wondering if you could tell us, how does creation care figure into the community's way of life? Seventh way, Mark, is to treat creation as a sacrament and to seek to let God speak to us through creation, through daily practices. And secondly, to be stewards of creation. And we do that through personal habits, shopping, travel, and earth care, mindful earth care, and also through lobbying to end practices which are destroying the earth. So some would live it because they're mindful people, and some would take more external action for both kinds of people. So I'm really interested in that, that pairing. On the one hand, you talk about a different perception, a different way of seeing or relating to creation in that God is present in creation, that, that you perceive God there. And there is the stewardship angle, that your relationship that implies certain ways of care and advocacy for creation. What's the interplay between those two? I read The Power of Now and went when I was full of worry and inward pain, I went up a hillside and spent two hours looking at a single blade of grass. And I realized that, as Jesus said about the flowers, the wild flowers, they did not worry. The blade of grass did not worry. It was totally itself. And it taught me the power of now, of stillness, of peace. 
and that I needed to throw off regrets and striving and learn the power of now through this blade of grass. That's just one simple example from my own experience. Climate deniers deny the Bible truth that we reap what we sow. Cain killed his brother, spilt blood on the land, and the land became sterile. The Son of God was crucified on a cross, and there was an earthquake, an eclipse of the sun, cause and effect. And the biblical prophets are constantly claiming that the land's become wasted and sterile because my people have raped the land. Jeremiah talks about this chapter after chapter. So I think that the Christian teaching has been subverted in recent centuries, and we're trying to reclaim both the biblical and the Celtic expression of it. I want to read a quote from your book, Celtic Christianity and Climate Crisis. And this is from page 20, the end of a chapter. You make a pretty bold statement. You you wrote, Celtic Christianity must become mainstream. The world needs to draw inspiration from people who cherish creation because they find God at its heart. That that's a, a pretty tall order. <laughs> it's a it's a statement that both inspires and and frightens me because I think how could this happen? How could Celtic Christianity become mainstream? Do you actually have hope for that? And and what do you think would come of that kind of transition where people embrace the mindset of Celtic Christians? Well, I think it either becomes mainstream or we lose the planet. People will try and recolonize other planets, but they just do the same thing, and it's it'll be the end. I think that the Johannine understanding of Christ is that the life force, the word, the logos, all things in creation comes from the heart of the living, personal creator God, the life force, the logos. And therefore, the wind and the seas and the soils all are precious manifestations of the life force. But climate deniers and so many Christians have made gods out of consuming and creating more out of a finite world. And we've got to replace that lust to control, which, of course, the Beatitudes knock on the head. Blessed are those who are not possessive. So Christians have to give up this possessive attitude. And I think this is the battle for the soul of the church in many of our countries. That's interesting. On the one hand, you say that in some ways the the hope of the world could be found through the church. And yet you look at the church today and much of it not only doesn't advocate for creation, but actually does some damage in terms of our attitudes and our practices. How much does the church in the world contribute to say, the the bleak future that will happen unless we don't change our ways? I think that that there are a percentage of churches in some countries who are evangelical, who claim that God wants us to improve ourselves and get more and more and to become wealthy as part of God's plan for us, and that climate deniers are anti-God. So I, I, I think that has to be knocked on the head and confronted absolutely straight on. But 
it is a human characteristic to be in denial about anything that upsets our self-centered lives. And I think that when Christianity gets tied in with self-centeredness, it's pretty deadly. How did that happen? How did, how did we get to this place? Well, I think in the first centuries, the way of Jesus spread amongst the poor and amongst slaves, and they worked with their hands. And then when it became so widely successful, it became clericalized, and therefore only Muslims now pray in the rhythms of the sun, ordinary people in the streets, in the open air, whereas church services became led by clerics who got paid higher wages and it became an indoors religion. And it became a colonial religion. And so you, you, you have state churches, you have a papacy that has a political headquarters and so, and so on. But evangelical churches are just as bad it's just that it's a capitalist form of that. So in your view, how does Celtic Christianity offer a framework for more of a grassroots spirituality of creation, as you put it? Well, I, I think it's vital that we look for within Christianity for examples of creation-friendly spirituality. And there are examples. And the Celtic is one of the foremost Columbanus in 500 and something, he talked that um, people who trample the earth, the earth will trample on them. And Eregina, who was the greatest scholar in the first millennium island all over Europe, he taught that uh, creation was like an artist's lines coming from the center of God in, in artistry through the world that nature was a, was a sign of, of God. And our well-being comes from communing with God in creation. And so I think that this idea, the Johannine idea, that the whole purpose of life and of Christianity is communion with God in his whole creation. And some of the early Christians were taught by the early church fathers in the East as well as the West in Celtic lands, that when you were baptized, you're immersed in water. But the Celtic Christians continued to pray immersed in water. And what they were doing was not only to restore Jesus as the second Adam, restoring individual souls to unity with God, but restoring Eden, the creation, to a relationship with its creator that has been lost. So the whole of Christianity we now need to see is a restoration not only of Adam, but of Eden. And this links, of course, with other spiritualities. And my friend Randy Woodley, who's part Cherokee and part Welsh, who, who lectures a lot in Oregon, he has written a wonderful book called Shalom, The World Community, drawing on both First Nation and biblical spirituality. And he draws up a construct of the harmony way, partly from indigenous people, but partly from the biblical understanding of Shalom which he says has been lost sight of by mainstream Christianity. So in such way, the creation centers of spirituality also flourishing. So what would actually happen if the church were to become reoriented, say, to a Celtic way of thinking and being? Practically speaking, how, how would that change the church? Well, I think every church could be a hub of a community that blesses the land, that rewilds any land it owns around church buildings, that farms, that shops, buys locally produced food, so it builds up local communities. 
organic maybe grown it's um, fairly traded food it would only use fairly traded food and animal friendly food and i think that it will restore the church as the vital living center for the locality it won't be people coming in motor cars for 50 miles because they like a particular preacher and then going back not caring a damn about the actual land which they've been motored into and motored out of. That's going to come to an end. I think by implication here, community seems to be the key word. Yeah. You're talking about a community with creation, but also the sorts of activities and ways of being that you're you're describing imply that people are living together differently. Yes. I went to a church in Canada where which was a gathered Baptist church, but they decided they wanted to become the church of the community. And several people, rather than leaving the church, who, who came in from miles outside, sold their houses and bought houses. They created three community gardens. People who were homeless were offered shelter, and they worked on the community gardens, and they shared their food on Sundays when they met for worship. That's just one example of many, many. And are these examples, do they have reflections in history? Are there examples that we can look to in uh, Celtic Christian practice of communities like that? Yes, Martin of Tours became a bishop. But when they made him a bishop, they wanted to put him on a throne. And he said, I won't go on a throne. Give me a cow store. And he evangelized people in, in areas around Ligouge before that. And he taught them to plow as well as to love Jesus. So he taught them the faith of Jesus and to plow because he felt that God was coming to them through nature. And so the Celtic idea that we have two books, the book of nature in one hand, the book of scripture in the other, is, I think, reviving today and is a very useful tool for us all. You made an association between the Celtic tradition and indigenous traditions. And in fact, you've called the Celtic tradition and indigenous tradition. Can you talk more about that relationship and perhaps even suggest how might we be looking to other current indigenous ways of life for inspiration for our own change? I've met indigenous people in Australia, Canada, and the USA, but only for fairly short periods of time. So I'm obviously been a, a mere guest for passing through. But I stayed for a week among the Hopi people in Arizona a, a few years ago. I made it my business to sit at their feet and try and discern the creator's marks, the footprints of the creator in their spirituality. And there is so much. They call, many, many of them call God the great spirit. Some of the Hopi women called beans their grandchildren and and they had a party to celebrate so that the beans would grow into plants and so on and i think that all the indigenous people have been much closer to the land than people who came in for example to the usa or to canada saying uh, this is this is a new land we can do what we like with it when in fact it wasn't a new land there've been people living there for centuries so i think the humility the reciprocity in First Nations spirituality to give something back to the creatures that give something to you is terribly important. I'm actually got a book coming out next year on Brendan's return voyage because there's a myth that Brendan sails 4,000 miles from Ireland to some Indians near Mississippi. And when he found them, 
to, to bring in a new Eden and a new way in evangelism. When he found them, they were so hospitable and Christ-like that he said, Jesus is already here. So he sailed all the way back to Ireland. <laughs> well, I think the point is this humility, we can't undo the crimes that have been inflicted on the First Nation people, but we can learn from their spirituality. And Euro-Americans can learn more about the nearest equivalent to their own forebears, indigenous tribes, which are the Celtic tribes, who were evangelized in an indigenous way, rather than having requiring to accept the culture of the evangelizing people. In our conversation thus far, Reverend Ray Simpson has been helping us to see how the Celtic Christian tradition challenges us to live more respectfully, more lovingly with the rest of creation. Indeed, one of the waymarks that guide the members of the community of Aden and Hilda states, we aim to be ecologically aware, to pray for God's creation and all his creatures, and to stand against all that would seek to violate or destroy them. Of course, this statement rings true for all who would call themselves earth keepers, and this podcast is committed to helping our community of listeners to find better ways to love and care for the earth in our everyday lives. To that end, we'll be trying something new in the podcast. Next month, I'll be co-hosting an episode with Courtney Christensen, founder and director of Sparks and Matches. Together, we'll be sharing really practical ideas for greener living and even reviewing products that can help us to reduce our carbon footprint. Now, here's the thing. We want to involve you. We're asking anyone, anywhere in our global community, to send us ideas for topics that you think we should address in this episode or questions we can answer for you on the show. You can do that in one of two ways. You can send us an email at earthkeepers at circlewood.online, or even better, you can record a voicemail on the podcast website at www.circlewood.online forward slash podcast. We look forward to hearing from you, friends. We're all in this together. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Ray Simpson. I want to read something again from your book, Celtic Christianity and Climate Crisis. And this is from page 25. You say, from this marginalized position, speaking of First Nations folks, Native peoples have a unique bias from the bottom, quote unquote, that we would do well to pay attention to. We could learn from them, among other things, that land cannot be owned and spirit cannot be divided. The earth and all its inhabitants belong to the creator who made them. We are called to live in harmony with each other and all created things. Creating harmony is a central idea in most indigenous religions. What is it, in your view, that keeps us from listening, keeps us from hearing the wisdom of indigenous traditions, which could show us a better way? I think that number one of the deadly sins, pride. I think we feel we're God Almighty and we can do what we like with the earth and run the world the way we want. And we've excused ourselves by saying that God has given us this mandate. So humbling ourselves is the key. I quote President Kennedy, who said in a very little known speech that the destiny of the USA cannot be fulfilled without a real knowledge of its indigenous people. And only when the American people understand and value that can America reach its greatness. When we think about 
praxis changes that Celtic Christianity would recommend to us. I'm wondering if perhaps first there isn't the need for an internal transformation, internal to the church, internal to each of our hearts. Is it just about changing the ways that we interact with the world, with community, with creation, or is there a spiritual change that's prerequisite? To behavior change. We, in our way of life with the community of Aidan and Hilda, and in many new monastic ways of life, we start with the Beatitudes, the values of them. And so we start with simplicity, which means that we have daily practices of getting rid of stuff that clutters us, of possessive attitudes. We actually examine our lives and get rid of possessiveness. Anything that clutters our spirit or clutters the world, we get rid of. It makes us free and open to receive more deeply from the earth. And then we have purity, that's authenticity of motive and obedience, which is to be obedient to that which is of God in every human person, but also be obedient to that which is of God in all creation. So we honour and respect the nature of every different part of creation. So that's a kind of way of life. And then the 10 way marks, we would work out with a soul friend, practical ways of reflecting rhythm, because the rhythm comes from creation. God has built rhythm into our bodies. So we have a, a daily rhythm of prayer in the rhythms of the sun and also lifestyle. So we try and have a simple, hospitable lifestyle. Um, we cultivate the lost art of listening. That's the very key part of it, I think. Can you tell me more about what you mean by listening? I think to begin to listen, we have to learn to be still and to have a respect for that which is of God in the person in front of us this very minute. I think we have to listen to the rhythms of our own body and soul. I think we have to listen to the rhythms of the land and the community among which we're set. And I think on a wider level, we have to listen to what a sick world rushing headlong into possible oblivion and certainly catastrophe is saying to us. And the still small voice behind this fatalistic Gadarene rush. So the art of listening is one of the very important parts of our waymarks. And we try and start by listening to one other person and echoing back what they've said to us. And very, very often we don't. And then they, they tell us what we haven't heard. So it's a long process to rediscover the art of listening. So listening really is, is something that flies in the face of Western culture, I think, because People tend to, say, have an expert mentality when they come into a certain context. They assume that they know how to take care of the environment, for example, before they've listened to the environment, before they've listened to nature and creation. How do we get past those, those built-in limitations that culture has taught some of us, the things that keep us from listening? Well, I began when a couple said to me, God gave us two ears and one mouth. Why don't we listen twice as much as we speak? And they said, every day you've got to write down in your journal or diary all the thoughts you get that pass the tests of absolute honesty, purity, unselfishness and love. And if any of them remain after those tests, think about them seriously and then see what you have peace about and, and envisage carrying them out 
and then see what God gives you in your heart. And that's that's the way I began to listen. So there are a lot of people using the term Celtic for a lot of things. And I think that because it is so diversely employed, that term, there might be some suspicion about it on the part of some people that maybe Celtic is actually not anything that has a sort of unified that will offer us a unified approach to our faith life. Let me read something again from your book. I'm taking this from page 41 at the bottom. You say, I use the word Celtic to embrace several inalienable aspects of the first Celtic mission. It is indigenous, cross-cultural, guttural, incarnational. And then you quote another person, Brent Lyons Lee urged that we include in our book Celtic Spirituality in an Australian landscape, this snapshot of Celtic spirituality. And he says, hospitality, no gender bias, an anti-empire mindset, loving nature and God's creation. What I'm wondering is, how is it that we can actually stay true to what is essentially Celtic? How do we know that? How do we discern if we're looking to Celtic traditions, Celtic theology even, how do we discern what's real and true and what isn't simply pop culture? Well, the first book I wrote, which was a bestseller in English, it was called Exploring Celtic Spirituality. It's published in the US as Celtic Christianity, which is very confusing, <laughs> by Adam Cara Press. But over the 25 years since then, I have studied every serious criticism of Celtic Christianity, and there are lots of criticisms, and I've distilled them down to 12 major criticisms, and I've likened this to a mining operation. And some of the stuff I've discovered in the mining is, in fact, rubbish or dross or artificial or unsubstantiated, and I dispose of it. But I come to the conclusion that there are, there is gold to be mined, if you go deep enough. Ian Bradley, who's a friend of mine and has done a lot of work on Celtic Christianity, he and I would define Celtic Christianity as the church in Celtic-speaking lands, which is about six or seven lands, from the period of the first evangelization of the gospel in the fourth or fifth centuries if you're a purist until the death of Aden in 651, or if you're not a purist until the 12th century. So the, the churches in those Celtic-speaking lands had certain characteristics which we can take hold of. Now, it's perfectly true that there have been revivals of Celtic nostalgia, the Twilight Romantic movement, which is anti-industrialization movement. Roman Catholics wanted to take over the Celts to prove they were the true church. Protestants wanted to prove they were the true church taking over the Celtics. So there's no doubt that the Celtic thing has been taken over by lots and lots of movements. But Ian Bradley and I would say if we go, if we take that definition, then we can go back to the, the quarry from which we are hewn, which passes the test. And that's why I talk about roots, rhythms, relationships and reality. Can you tell us more about that? I think the, the the Celtic drew a lot of their inspiration from the desert fathers and mothers of Egypt, some of whom did actually come and settle in Britain and Ireland. And so they were very ascetic and they had roots in daily meditation on the scriptures and in prayer. 
and on creation. And they were real because they stripped aside the eight deadly passions, which, uh, and so there was nothing left but love. That was their idea. So the Celts were passionate about getting rid of what we might call the false ego, doing work on the false ego, so that the real you, the God-given you, the core of you, is left. I think that's one important thing. But relationships, they had this soul friend, Anamkara, and they said that a person without a soul friend is like a human body without a head. And it was a unique thing, really, to Ireland and, and to Britain, though the the desert fathers had elders, which was fairly similar in some ways. But the friend wasn't just a spiritual director. He was a true friend who journeyed with you and accompanied you through life. So I think this, and they had the spiritual mothers who mentored and actually were substitute parents for loads of children. So this whole idea of relationship is very, very much more important than a top person telling you what you had to do. I have been reading your works and I've read them with appreciation because I realized that one of the ways that we can perhaps stay true to what is authentically Celtic that has real roots in, in history and practice, one of the ways we can stay true to that is to listen to the minors, to use your phrase. And as I was reading your books, I thought, I, I just don't have capacity to do the kind of research that is informing this writing. And so I felt gratitude toward you <laughs> and to people like you who, who do take the time to, to do the mining, to find the gold, and then to present it to us in ways that we can access it and understand it. Well, I'd like to say as a big thank you. That's very encouraging because sometimes you feel you're plowing a lonely furrow. So that that's very encouraging. I'm curious about what drew you to to studying all things Celtic in the first place. Like, where did that come from for you? Well, I was called because I worked for the Bible Society, which worked with all the churches, Catholic and Protestant, to to do a unique experiment. In it was in England to found one family of Christians for one neighbourhood. So there was one Christian church with six strands. Catholic, uh, Episcopal or Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterian, United Reformed, Methodist, and Quaker. And the Pentecostals and Community Church gave the right hand to fellowship and the Salvation Army band played for us and all that. It was a unique experiment. And we took this seriously. And then it raised the question of new people becoming Christians they wanted to know more about Jesus in the Bible. They didn't really want to know more about what it means to join the church, which was a headache for me. So I pioneered a course. And I began to realize that, the, and I asked the, the leaders of all the six denominations, not what's your difference in an organization that would be hell on earth, but what is the unique God-given charism that you feel you're carrying on this earth? And I began to realize that there were these many different streams. I call them streams rather than charisms. They've now all become separate. But I asked myself, was there ever a time when those streams flowed as one river? That drew me to study how, what I call the Acts of the Apostles, Volume 2, how the way of Jesus took when it left the Jewish Judea, 
and the Greek-speaking lands that the Acts of the Apostles tells us about and came into the Celtic-speaking lands on the edge of the Roman Empire. But I call that the Acts of the Apostles, Volume 2. And I, I found that these streams flowed as one river. And then I asked myself, is it just a dray dream or could it be that these streams could flow together again as one river? Have they gone underground or have they completely disappeared? And I came to the conclusion that they have gone underground, they haven't completely disappeared, and that we can tap into them, and that with the help of God, it can become as one river again in our, maybe not in my lifetime, but in some people's lifetimes. People who listen to this podcast tend to, to really want to take away action points from what they hear. If people find themselves intrigued by by what they're hearing today from us, what would you recommend to them in terms of where to take it from here? Where can they go to, to learn more and even perhaps to experiment with, with integration of Celtic concepts and practices? Well, get in touch with the community of Aidan and Hildred or a similar new monastic movement. Then find yourself a soul friend who will walk with you. Write out an experimental way of life with the 10-way marks, the spiritual practices you will actually commit to, which includes listening to God in creation and caring for creation, learning to listen, learning to build community, forging a simple lifestyle with an unpossessive hospitality. That's a very key thing. And then maybe you can ask yourself what practical project you can get involved with, whether it's rewilding a bit of land or rewilding your soul. It seems to me that that probably that would be best done in community rather than as an individual act, given the nature of Celtic thought, Celtic practice. Yes, we are a dispersed community, but we keep in touch through Zoom and so on and, and retreats. We, we have retreat houses on the Holy Islands of Lindisfarne in, in the UK and in several other countries we have retreat cottages so people can meet up and share and listen to God together. We do online retreats and that sort of thing in the States and in, in quite a number of countries. And in uh, Queensland, Australia, for example, Heather Johnson, who is committed to our way of life, her parents are part of the land grabbers, she calls them, and she's given in legal covenant in, to, in perpetuity a huge area of the land she owns according to current Australian law to be for the environment in perpetuity. And she calls it Beulah, God is married to the land. The creator is married to the land and is invited back Aboriginal people who are doing crafts there and carvings and come and go and plant trees. So that's just one example of a project that a number of people who follow the way of life of the community of Aden Hilda can start where they've got the will and the wherewithal. It seems to me that when you talk about the waymarks, what those do for us is to make practical these otherwise potentially heady ideas just connected from from day-to-day -day reality. The beauty of the Waymarks is that it could lead you to do things like Heather did, right? It, it has absolute practical implications. If you just look around and, and look at the needs around you, the Waymarks guide you into, into the application of, of Celtic modes of thinking. 
Absolutely, yes. I think we need to challenge one another. That's the value of the way of life. So although we are a dispersed community, there are groups of members who form a house of prayer or turn sheds in their garden into places of prayer where they welcome others. And all sorts of things. Uh, A lady in Ireland turned a bit of wasteland into a prayer garden and got the local council to undertake to maintain it after she moved out of the area. So projects like that we can all take part in. In terms of the state of the world, especially in terms of the state of the environment in the world, I'm wondering how, how hopeful you are. Do you have hope as you look to the future? Well, when Greta Thunberg spoke to the United Nations in the presence of President Trump and many other leaders and said, how dare you pursue eternal growth, thinking you can get more and more out of a finite world when the planet is about to be destroyed, I thought this is the first time I felt that clash between reality and unreal political rhetoric meeting in one place. Well, there's a long way to go from that one piece of rhetoric at the United Nations. So I think it's 50-50. I I don't know which way it's going to go. I mean, the recent fires in California are just a sign of, and the huge melting of the ices. People, it's going to be, without any doubt, will be mass migration, mass poverty, uh, mass violence as a result. And your life and my life will not be the same again, nor will anybody else's. I think that's clear. But whether we can follow, bring the way of Jesus with sufficient immediacy, passion and spiritual intelligence to move the levers that move the world, if we could get Bezos and Branson, it's no good doing all the bad things to other planets that we've already done to this earth. It's just going to make it worse. So we've got to get the movers and shakers converted, as well as all millions of ordinary people. That's our challenge. So I don't know the answer whether we'll do it or not, but I think it's not impossible. We've been in conversation with Ray Simpson, author, scholar, and founding guardian of the community of Aden and Hilda. If you want to learn more about the community or about Celtic ways in general, go to www.adenandhilda.org.uk. That's Aidenandhilda, all one word, .org.uk. You can also find this link and information about Ray's publications in the show notes for this episode. As always, you'll find the show notes on the Earthkeepers podcast website. Earthkeepers podcast explores ways in which we can change ourselves, our communities, and our cultures to help us to care for the earth in holistic and regenerative ways. Through curated conversations, we highlight the wisdom of thought leaders and change agents who are making a difference and showing us a way forward. When Earthkeepers stand together, they amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. I am Forrest Dinsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Our producer is Dave Olfers. Forrest Reed is our editor and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. And Jessalyn Megerly is our social media director. 
Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us next time on the Earthkeepers podcast.